You find it helpful to have Leviticus open in front of you. Now, when children, Jewish children, begin to learn about their Bible, do you know where they start? That's not a real question. I'm not expecting you to answer. You might be able to guess the answer from what we're looking at this morning. It's Leviticus, believe it or not. That's where they start to study. Whereas many of us think of this book as a must to avoid, in Jewish thought, this is where you start. And what if I told you that some commentators think that Genesis and Exodus were written as a sort of foreword to the book of Leviticus? That's no joke. One calls Genesis merely an introductory prologue to Leviticus. Another says when we read the book, the entire narrative history of Genesis and Exodus are formed into something of an introduction to the book of Leviticus. Believe me, that was a surprise to me too as I started uh, looking into this book. I think I've always viewed Leviticus as a sort of appendices to the other books of Moses at the beginning of the Bible. You know, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're where the action are. And Leviticus is sort of there for the superkinis if you're interested in Middle Eastern priestly rituals. But actually, it's right at the heart of the first five books of the Bible that we call the books of Moses or the Pentateuch. In fact, if you think about it, it literally is. It's the centre of the book, uh, books of the Pentateuch. Uh, with the journey to Mount Sinai before and the journey away from Mount Sinai afterwards. So you sort of get this sort of structure with the the books of uh, the five books of Moses. Actually, it sort of builds up to Leviticus and then comes away down the other side. And in fact, if you think about it, if you didn't have the headings to the books, you wouldn't know that Leviticus was a new book in a way. It starts off where Exodus ends. That's why we looked at Exodus uh, just before. It follows the plot of what comes before, and then Numbers afterwards carries on the plot afterwards. So there are things that happen in Leviticus... And then it just carries on afterwards. So it's part of one continuous story. But it means that this is the sort of middle. This is the height. uh, The centre of the pyramid. In Hebrew books, putting something in the centre made it the most important. And in fact, we'll see actually the whole book of Leviticus is structured this way. So just a sort of sneak preview. These are the titles of the things that we're looking at over the coming weeks. They sort of build to the centre with Leviticus chapter 16 there, the Day of Atonement being the very peak of the whole book. What does that mean as we look into this book for our series? Well, it means that this is not for the superkinis. Leviticus is for us all. There are tough bits, mainly because we're unfamiliar with the book. There are confusing bits. But the idea is not that we start this series with all the answers, is it? That's why we look into these books to help us. On the other hand, please remember that the Bible has one story. The Bible has one message. In one sense, we shouldn't expect to find something radically different in Leviticus than what we find in the rest of the Bible. And that should help us as we go through Leviticus. We're not going to be looking at something completely different to what we look at normally. Having said that, if you do have questions, please do remember that you can write them on blue slips and uh, pop them in the box at the back and we'll look at them as we go along. There's likely to be a few as we go through. So to help us start, I want us to think about an important question as we think about Leviticus. And that's the question, why is Leviticus there? If we don't grasp that, we won't understand why he's talking about what he's talking about in the book. 
So why did God put Leviticus in the Bible? What question is it answering? Well, to answer that question, I want us to look very briefly at the story so far in the Bible. It's only the third book in the Bible, so there's not all that much to do. But if you think about it, in the beginning, we see in Genesis, don't we, that God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God hovers over the watery chaos below, and God speaks creation into being. And we see three abodes in creation that's sort of put there in those first three days. Uh, we see the... Um, Okay. We see the heavens, that's up at the top, the earth and the deep. The heavens really are pictured as the abode of God. And the heavenly bodies are up there and are marked off by the clouds. So he makes these sort of ascending order of things marked off by the clouds at the top. And he also then made a garden called Eden. And he put it on top of a great mountain. Now if you don't believe me, think about it. If you read the Genesis accounts, four rivers flow from the river in Eden. Now, I'm not a geography expert. I did GCSE. That's about as far as I got. But rivers, in general, flow downhill, don't they? That's something that I learned. I had to throw oranges in to prove it or something. But they do flow downhill. And Eden must be very high up because four great rivers come from Eden. It's also referred to in Ezekiel as the holy mountain of God. Um, I think I've put that on the back of your notice sheets in Ezekiel 28, 13 and 14. It sort of shows you this idea of it being elevated. So he builds a, a mountain, if you like, and puts a garden on top. And Eden was a paradise. Now the word paradise literally means a walled garden. And if you read the account, that's similar too. We know that it had an entrance to it on the east side... Because that's what's guarded by angels. If there wasn't some sort of blockage to getting in, if it wasn't walled off, then Adam and Eve could just walk around the corner, couldn't they? But actually, Adam and Eve are kicked out to the east. And we see in Genesis 3.24 that he places cherubim and a flaming sword to stop them getting back into the garden. In that garden, God walks with them in the cool of day. And the picture is of unhindered, wonderful fellowship with God. The seventh day being the the end of it. A wonderful picture of communion with their creator in the safety of the garden. A lovely picture of rest with God. In the garden is a tree of life which offers eternal life. But Adam and Eve sin against God, breaking his command, and are thrown out of the garden and are unable to re-enter. They're kicked out of paradise and now must face life outside of the garden, away from God's presence... And out of communion with God. And sin increases. Cain kills Abel after his sacrifice is not accepted. And is cast out east into the land of Nod. Further from the entrance to the garden. Sin increases. God sends a flood. Rescuing one man and his family. They go through the waters of chaos and decreation. Through the deep and finish on a mountain. Where Noah makes a burnt offering of clean animals from the ark. Which make a pleasing aroma to God. And God makes a covenant of peace with mankind. But by this point, Eden is washed away. Things don't go well, though. They head east, and they build a ziggurat tower, a man-made mountain, a city trying to reach up to the heavens, trying to get into the the top part, if you like. Man is trying to regain the abode of God. They're trying to get back to Eden by taking heaven itself, building a new Eden that reaches into the clouds, into the abode of God, an artificial Eden, if you like. 
But God stops the building and scatters them across the earth. And now God steps in to take some steps to bring them back. He makes promises to a man called Abraham. He makes a covenant that he will undo what Adam and Eve did. It's a covenant with his seed, a promise that will come about later on. He tells Abraham to go to a new land that he will show him. Abraham sets out from Ur in Babylon in the east and heads west to the land of Canaan. Man, if you think about it, it's finally changed direction. They're heading back to Eden, led by God's promises. Now fast forward a few hundred years, and Moses is drawn out of the waters of death and chaos and brought to meet with God on Mount Sinai in a burning bush. God tells him that he will rescue them and that Israel will worship God on this mountain. So God brings Israel out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea to the foot of Mount Sinai. And God himself descends on top of the mountain by a cloud. So we sort of get this picture with Mount Sinai. We've got sort of three levels. We've got God descending on the top bit with a cloud. And then you've got Israel around the bottom who can't approach. And then in the middle, there's a place where 70 elders approach, but they can't go into the cloud. So you have this same sort of picture that there's a sort of gradient as they go up. One man alone can enter the cloud and meet with God, and that man is Moses. God again makes a covenant with them. God gives Moses instructions on how to build a tabernacle, a special tent, where God will dwell with his people, which is also called the tent of meeting. The second half of Exodus is taken up with instructions on how it's to be built. There's an outer tent with cherubim embroidered on it. There's a lamp inside it that looks suspiciously like a tree of life with seven branches. There's an entrance that's to the east. Did you notice all the points that we looked at were on the points of the compass? I could go on. But what we have here really is a new Eden. Here is a new creation or a picture of it really. The tree of life is there. The cherubim are there on the outside guarding the way. There's gold and jewels in there. There are seven stages to creation. There are seven stages to creating the tabernacle, if you go through the book of Exodus. When the tabernacle is transformed into the temple, the garden imagery increases even more. So the entrance to the tabernacle is on the east. And as you go further and further in, you go further and further west. The direction that God is sort of pointing them, the way he doesn't throw them out. And the book of Exodus that we read earlier finishes with the tabernacle being complete. They now have a portable Eden, if you like, a portable mountain of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord descends as a cloud. Eden is here again. The dwelling of God is with his people. And Moses can't go in. Do you notice that at the end of it? The cloud comes down. The glory of the Lord is there. And Moses is unable to enter. He can't go through the cloud. They built a place for God, a tabernacle for him to live in, so to speak. But it's not really a tent of meeting at this point, because they can't meet with him. They can't get in. So Exodus really finishes on a cliffhanger. After all this, after they've gone through everything that God has said to put the tabernacle there for God to dwell among them, are they not actually going to be able to meet with him? How are they going to get in? After all this, how can we really get back into Eden? If Moses even can't get into it, what chance do any of us stand? So Leviticus is written to answer that question. 
How can we get back into Eden? Which is a bigger question than you might think. Because looking forward to the end of the Bible, the final destination is Eden. If you like, a new Eden. God with his people in the new creation. How do we get in? How do we get there? How do we get back to Eden? How do we spend eternity with him in the most wonderful rest that we see at the beginning? And this is what the book is seeking to answer. Hang on. There you go. Should have shown you that with a tabernacle. Here we go. See? This is actually north-south, but it should be east-west. And the top section is blocked off there by cloud. Okay, so why is Leviticus there? Well, just as it seems... Sorry, how do we get back into Eden? Here we go. Just as it seems that all is lost, a voice calls to Moses from within the tabernacle and tells him the way in. That's why we had Leviticus 1 verse 1 read. Do you see it there? The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying... Moses isn't able to get in, but God speaks to him from the tabernacle. So this is no man-made answer. This is God telling man how to get in. And the way in that he sets out is sacrifice. That's the first part to our answer as we go through Leviticus. Sacrifice. God sets up a system of sacrifices so that he can be approached. Sacrifice is the way in. Without sacrifice, there can be no return to Eden. But we don't just see one sacrifice here, we see many sacrifices. And the many sacrifices point to the many things that must be sorted out. The way back in is not simple and it's not easy. Actually, the solution reveals the seriousness of the problem we face. The problems require death. The problems require bloodshed, sacrifices of various kinds. Now, we have five sacrifices in these first chapters of Leviticus. I've come up with a story to sort of help us explain what is going on with the different sacrifices. So here we go. Here is a story that will help us get our head around it. There was once a man who lived near the estate of a great lord. He and the lord are friends. The man goes out walking one day and accidentally trespasses on the lord's land. And it gets worse. He falls over on a pile of carrots breaking the carrots, ruining them, and he gets covered in manure in the process. The man now has several problems. The first one... Oh, we've got all of them there. Hang on a second. Uh, The first one... He has trespassed on the Lord's land. So he's done something against the law. Second problem that he has is he's damaged the Lord's property. Those carrots are now ruined. The third problem that he has is that he's made himself filthy. He stinks. A stench now follows him round. The fourth problem that he has is that the great Lord will now not meet with him. Probably because he smells a little bit, but all the other things as well. He's broken fellowship with the Lord as well. And then fifthly, the Lord doubts whether he really is a loyal subject anymore because of what he's done. Now imagine that these problems are not with a nearby neighbour, but with God himself. We all face the problems as human beings, don't we? We have broken the law. We have damaged the Lord's property, so to speak. We owe it. We have made ourselves unclean and unfit to stand before God. 
We have broken our fellowship with God and we have made the Lord doubt our loyalty and thankfulness to him for being our Lord. So our problem is not a simple one, it's a complex one. Let me put this up there. And those sacrifices are there to sort out those different problems. The solution is sacrifice. In order to approach God, in order to go further west, in order to go into the tabernacle, we need sacrifice. So God reveals five sacrifices for the people to make. And this is the first part of the answer of how to eat the Israelites were to approach a holy God. The other answers we'll look at in other weeks. We'll take this nice and slow, keep it simple. We're going to do them out of order, but I'll explain it at the end. First of all, we get the burnt offering. Let me read you Leviticus uh, chapter 1 and verses 3 to 9. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the sons... Um, uh, the, the priests, sorry, the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that, that is on the fire of the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with an aroma pleasing to the Lord. I'll just put up the diagram of the, the tabernacle so you can understand as I'm uh, really, this is what we're looking at. Um, if you want to know what it sort of looks like in real life, that would be roughly what it would be like. And then you have the inside of the, the, the tent there. But that's basically what we're looking at. That should help us. We read those different things. But what happened here in the burnt offering? Well, he takes one of three kinds of acceptable animals. Cattle, sheep or goats and birds. They can either be turtle doves or pigeons. And there's a similar process with all three kinds. We've just read one of those kinds, but the other bits of chapter one are just repeating for those other animals. The worshipper would bring the animal himself to the entrance and lay his hands on the animal. The worshipper would kill it and drain the blood from the animal. He would skin it and he would chop it up into pieces. The priest would wash various parts of the animal, the legs probably to remove any dung or anything around the back. And then he, the priest would splash the blood that had been collected on the sides of the altar. The priest would do a little bit more with birds, but that's because they're more fiddly, they're sort of smaller. What was unique about this sacrifice? Well, unlike the others, the whole of the animal would be sacrificed. All apart from the skin which was given to the priest. Really, it was a burnt up offering, that's really what it meant. And the idea of them would be that the word meant ascending then as well, to be burnt up and taken up. It could be called an ascension offering because it really goes up in smoke. It's transformed into smoke, which then goes up into the clouds, bringing the smell of the sacrifice to God. So it's an ascension offering. It's the idea of everything is destroyed and turns into smoke and goes up. Other things that are unique is that it must be a perfect male that is sacrificed to these animals. No females, and no blemishes. 
That would actually mean, uh, in terms of finance, that would be a more precious, more expensive offering than other ones. This was a, a really uh, expensive offering to make. What is it for? Well, this is the solution for sin and God's anger at it. This was really an attempt for the sacrifice to take God's wrath and anger. But notice, it's only for unintentional sins. Sin that wasn't done on purpose. In the offerings that we look at, there'll be no offering for sin that's done purposefully, on purpose. We'll come back to that later on. But really, the main goal of this, as one commentator writes, its main function was to atone for sin by propitiating God's wrath. By taking God's wrath, his anger. And the animal here replaces the worshipper. That's why he places his hands on it. The animal replaces the worshipper and is destroyed whole. The sin is atoned for in the death of the animal in the place of the worshipper. So that's the first one, uh, the burnt offering. The second one we're going to look at is the guilt offering. Have a look at chapter 5 and we're going to read 14 to 16. Chapter 5, 14 to 16. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy things, and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. So this is called the guilt offering. I've also called it the recompense offering, which some of the commentators do as well. What is it for? Well, this is the solution for the debt we owe to God. Not sin so much, but literal debt. This is a compensation offering, if you like. It'd be like, you know, this would be the one that would have the advert on the TV saying, you know, have you got your compensation? This is compensation, though, to God. When God has been denied of something like service or property, or when his name has been used improperly. And this one seems to be when the worshippers' conscience is pricked. They feel guilty. That's why it's called the guilt offering. He comes and offers voluntarily confessing his error. The only ones who didn't come voluntarily were lepers who had to give this offering when they'd been cured of leprosy. The idea there seems to be that the Lord had been denied of their worship while they were unclean. So they needed to offer compensation, offer recompense. What happened? Well, a ram without a blemish is sacrificed. Not whole like the burnt offering. The norm was that only part of the offering was burnt and the rest was given to the priest as their share. A fifth extra was also given. What was unique? Well, this one could be exchanged for money. Do you notice that as we read through? You could give money in lieu of sacrifice. This might explain the giving an extra fifth part, because obviously giving a fifth of a ram, a bit complicated to work out what part of a ram do you give as a fifth of a ram. So it seems that often this was done in money instead. This was paid. This moved the sacrifice more into the commercial sort of financial realm. It was the idea of paying a debt, which if you think about it, does come up through the rest of the Bible, does come up through the New Testament. But that's what the guilt offering was about. Next, the purification or sin offering. Have a look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commands about things not to be done, and does any of them, it is the anointed priest who sins, this, oh, sorry, if it is the anointed priest who sins, uh, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hands on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of the burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken out from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering, but the skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a, pla a clean place to the ash heap, and he shall burn it on the fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. Okay, sin offering. Also sometimes called the purification offering. What is it for? Well, this is the solution for uncleanness, for pollution, if you like. Historically, this has often been seen as the key atoning propitiation sacrifice that we talked about earlier, taking God's wrath. But a closer look reveals it's to do with expiation, the covering of sin, dealing with sin and its uncleanness rather than dealing with God's wrath. God's wrath is dealt with in the burnt sacrifice, when the whole animal is burnt up. But if you notice, this one has to do with what you do with the blood. It's all to do with the animals and how you take the blood out and where you put it. What happened? Well, this one differed from person to person and group to group. We just read the high priest, but there are other categories as well of people. A sacrifice would be made. Part would be sacrificed. The rest of it would be given to the priests. The hands of the worshipper would again be laid on the animals. What was unique? Well, the sacrifices differed depending on their relation to the life of the nation. So we had the high priest, but there's also sacrifices for the whole congregation, for a leader in the community, for just a regular community member. And the higher the position, the more serious and costly the sacrifice. For the high priest, we see that the blood is taken into the holy place. Some of the blood is smeared on the altar of incense, you see, right by the uh, curtain. And the rest of it is sort of splashed before the curtain, before the most holy place right in the, the, the far end. The rest of it is poured out before the altar of burnt offering, wholly given over to God. The fatty parts are offered to God, and the rest is sent outside the tabernacle. In fact, outside the camp and dumped in an ash heap. Now, there was an ash heap in the temple to the east of the um, uh, altar of burnt offering, but this one was actually outside the camp altogether. 
But for others, the demands were less great. Um, So it included people who had become unclean from touching dead animals. It included rash oaths. But again, the blood was the key difference. It was smeared on the corners of the burnt offering altar, for example. It was to do with the blood covering over the sacrifice. That was the sort of picture that you get with the purification offering, with the sin offering. And the more serious, the more important. So that's the, the sin offering. We're nearly there. Grain offering. Have a look at chapter 2. This is also called the tribute offering. We're going to look at verses 1 to 3, and then 11 to 15. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil and all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. And then down to verse 11. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits you may bring to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from the grain offerings. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer the grain offering of your first fruits, fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering, and the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. What is this one for? This is a solution for God doubting loyalty or thankfulness. The offering was very similar to a tribute paid to a lord or a king. The word, when it's not used in a religious context, means exactly that, a tribute. It was a gift or a present to pledge allegiance, loyalty or thanksgiving to someone. It wasn't, as some have thought in the past, a sort of poor man's burnt offering or sin offering. This was a completely separate idea. So what happened? Grain would be presented to the priest at the entrance of the tabernacle. The priest would accept the offering. Most would be kept by the priest. It was a source of their income, so to speak. And a small part would be burnt on the altar after salt, oil and frankincense had been added. What was unique about this? Well, it was always grain or flour rather than an animal. We read of the uncooked grain, that's the bit we read, but there's also cooked grain and fried grain, it's all sort of different cooking techniques. But we just read the uncooked one. And it was a sacrifice that was often offered with other ones. The only exception, it seems, or the main exception, was harvest time, when it was offered uh, for Israel's harvest festival, uh, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. It always came with salt, never to be offered with yeast or honey, I think the idea there seems to be that salt preserves, whereas yeast and honey start the fermenting process, sort of seen as decay. So the gift was to be whole. You know, you couldn't present something that was decaying as a a thank offering. You you couldn't present a mouldy cake to someone to say thank you. It just doesn't work, does it? And the gift was to be whole, not decaying, and it would be a pleasing aroma to God. Okay, last offering. We're nearly there. 
Peace offering, chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, he, uh, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without, any ble- uh, without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them with the loins um, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove from the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood, um, which is on, sorry, which is on the wood of the, on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, what is this one about? Well, this is about sharing fellowship with God. And in some ways, this is the goal of every other sacrifice that's been made. The reason that we did them in that order is that this would be the last one to be offered. We did them in the order that they would be done on the day in the morning uh, sacrifices. In some ways, it's as though the other ones lead up to this one. It's also, if you think about it, the middle of the five sacrifices. Which if you think about those pyramid structures, this makes one, this one central. So why was it so important? Well, what happened? Well, it's similar to other sacrifices. A variety of animals could be brought we read cattle, um, the rest of the chapter, we, sorry, we read cattle, the rest of the chapter is sheep and goats. There could be male or female, but no birds. Presumably here, a turtle dove doesn't make much of a feast. But the worshipper would lay his hands on the animal as they presented them at the entrance, as with the other sacrifice. The fatty parts were offered to God and blood was splashed on the side of the altar. The best was the sort of fatty idea, and the life belonged to God, that's with the blood. But what makes this one so special is what was unique about it. This is the only one where the worshipper would join in the meal. The worshipper would enjoy the sacrifice along with the priests. Not necessarily in the same place. It wasn't like they sort of had a table outside and they all got round. They got to take it away with them. But they still got to enjoy it along with the priests. So it was to do with fellowship and wholeness. It was a shalom sacrifice. That's literally what it means. A meal of wholeness with God. It foreshadows what the prophets would call the messianic feast, the great banquet in heaven, table fellowship with the creator of the universe. So if you think about it, we've we've gone on a journey with the sacrifices in a way. In this journey of sacrifices, we've gone from being God's enemy under his wrath, but that's been dealt with, stained with sin, but that's been dealt with, in his debt, but that's been dealt with. Being doubted as a subject, but that's been dealt with. And now what happens here right at the centre, we're seated with him at his table. This is the goal of all the sacrifices. Fellowship with God. Friendship with God. Communion with God. I think so often we miss that this is the goal. We think that the goal of sacrifices is forgiveness. But even forgiveness is a means to an end, a repaired fellowship with God. We were made to commune with God, to enjoy a relationship with him. We saw that, didn't we, as the Genesis idea in Eden. And this is where all the sacrifices lead, to this central one where we enjoy fellowship, communion with God. 
So what has all this got to do with me? That's our last point. What's all this got to do with me? Well, there's some massive mistakes we can make. First one is get out the balls. That's the first one, isn't it? Sounds daft, but I've been at meetings of Christians where people have tried to reenact scenes from Leviticus and Exodus using oil rather than blood. So it's not that crazy um, that people would think that this is the way to do it. It sounds less daft as well when you think that actually many churches around our land, especially the Catholic and Anglican ones, the really old ones, are laid out east to west, just like the temple was. Otley Parish Church, if you check it on a map, is laid out east to west with the entrance to the east. As you head west in that kind of church, you get to the front where there's an altar. The man who does stuff there is a priest who offers sacrifices. It's taking Leviticus completely the wrong way. As though we need to make our churches, mini church buildings, mini temples. The second mistake though we can make is to ignore it altogether, as though it's got nothing to teach us. We laugh at that, but functionally I think that that's what many of us as evangelicals do. We may not put it like that, but we've no idea how to apply it. And when I've chatted to people, very few people have heard it preached, even though we believe it's the word of God. But Leviticus is Christian scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful, says the Bible. What we need to understand, though, is that um, if we... um, if we take that this book is about how to get to back to Eden, if we take that this book is how to get to heaven, then it must be a book that's for, first and foremost about Jesus. If you think about it, if that's the question that it's answering, then that is the answer, isn't it? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's priestly language. The way to the Father, the way back to heaven, is Jesus. So what does this part of Leviticus teach us about Jesus? That's what we need to ask. Well, it teaches us, doesn't it, that he is the ultimate sacrifice. That without him, we cannot approach God. Now, take some time in the week to think this through, because I could happily spend another 40 minutes on this, but I won't. But here we go. He's the ultimate burnt offering. Ephesians 5, verse 2. It says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's not the language used of the Passover lamb. It's the language used of a burnt offering. Jesus takes God's wrath. He was consumed so that we don't have to be. Not just for unintentional sins, but for all sins. It talks about in Acts that Jesus offered sacrifice, if you like, gave forgiveness for all that the law of Moses could not. He's the ultimate guilt offering. He pays the ransom for our guilt before God. That language of sacrifice that pays really comes from the guilt offering. When Jesus offers himself as a ransom payment, it's the same idea. He's the ultimate purification offering. His blood covers our sins, precious flow that covers over our sinfulness and pollution. He's the ultimate tribute offering, offering what we couldn't to our wonderful king. The gift of a life and a death wholly given to God in service to him in thankfulness. And he's the ultimate peace offering, a sacrifice that we share in. When Jesus talks in the New Testament about eating his flesh, that sounds weird, doesn't it? But it fits with what we see here, a sacrifice that we share in to restore fellowship between God and man. 
Each sacrifice here, if you like, is given to be a window on Jesus' perfect sacrifice, letting us see it from a different angle. What's our role in this? Well, the main thing that we need to do is accept that sacrifice. Before we come to anything about us being living sacrifices, we need to accept his sacrifice. If we have done that, we need to marvel at the kaleidoscope of images that's given here. How God has carefully and thoughtfully and wonderfully unpicked our problem through Jesus. And now, after we have done that, our response is to become living sacrifices. That's what it says in Romans 12. And our sacrifice too should contain these elements in some ways. Not in the same way as Jesus, but they're there to show us that too. Offering the whole of ourselves like a burnt offering. Offering recompense for wrongs we have done to others. That's part of our living sacrifice. Think Zacchaeus and what he does. Offering forgiveness to others when we, they, they sin against us. Rubbing them, uh, rubbing, on the, rubbing them on the altar, so to speak, their sins, rather than rubbing them in their faces. Covering over sin. Offering ourselves in thankful service to God that lasts, like the tribute offering. And all of that in fellowship with God. And with the rest of his people, like the peace offering. And it covers all areas of our life, doesn't it, this sacrifice? Financial. So New Testament Romans, sorry, Philippians 4, 18 speaks as our financial gifts as a fragrant offering. Evangelism. Romans 15, 16, Paul speaks of offering the Gentiles to God as an offering. In our speech, Hebrews 13, 15 speaks of lips that acknowledge God's name as a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. So we'll sacrifice with this in our relationships, won't we? In our families, in our marriages, in our workplaces. Think about what those areas of life would look like if we laid down our life as living sacrifices to God in those areas this week. And we think the book of Leviticus isn't practical. Actually, it touches every area of our life. And breathe. We've done the first six chapters. We're going to carry on. We're not going to do as long a section as we go further through. But let's sing and thank our wonderful Lord Jesus for all that he's done as our sacrifice.